Well, spring is here, and I don't know if you're like me, uh, I am excited that baseball is just around the corner. I'm a big uh, baseball fan, as uh, you all may know. But I recently heard a story about a minor league team in Mississippi. Now, if you know much about sports, you know that a three or a four or even a five game road trip isn't all that out of the ordinary. But there is uh, there's a team called the Biloxi Shuckers uh, that's uh, based in Biloxi, Mississippi, that last year started their season on a 55-game road trip. <laughs> 55 games. The reason being is their, their new stadium had been delayed in its construction. It wouldn't be ready until midsummer, So they had to quickly, in the offseason, rework their schedule for 55 games uh, on the road. It's the AA affiliate for the Milwaukee Brewers. Now, I would imagine, you see some of these pictures here, I would imagine that by the end of 55 games, they would be quite sick of each other. And uh, ESPN did quite a feature of them and, and uh, the things they had to improvise and the laundry they're doing at a laundromat at 2 o'clock in the morning and they're giving each other haircuts in the hotel bathrooms and all those things you don't really think about. They just were sick of uh, even eating fast food and, and eating out all the time. But a 55-game road trip. And I began to think about this, that the truth is that this is actually the church today in North America. We are on a road trip. We, have all, we are always now playing an away game. A generation or two ago, we used to be the home team in our culture, right? In my grandparents' generation, you could ask very regularly, where, did you go to, where do you go to church? Right? It was assumed that you have a church, people are going to come. In my parents' generation, it was, eh, there's a, a favorable understanding of church. But we come to my generation, our generation, um, you start with the question, I and mean, I think of the question that I asked my neighbor when we first moved to Lansdale and we were starting Renew. I said, would you be interested in coming to church with me? And he looked at me and said, and why the F would I ever want to do that? We're, in a way, we're an away team. We are always playing an away game right now. We no longer have the advantages that come with a home team. And so when we use this phrase at Renew that we seek to be missionaries cleverly disguised as good neighbors, this isn't going across the world. Very important. We're involved in global missions. But what does it look like for us to actually engage in missions here in our own culture? Do you realize this is the first time since St. Patrick where our job in our culture today as Christians is to re-evangelize a place that has already been evangelized. First time since St. Patrick, okay? That was a long time ago. So what we, what, here's what we're going to do this morning. I want to encourage you to turn to Acts chapter 17. We're going to get there in just a second, but I'll share this with you. This is one of my absolute favorite passages to teach on. I love Acts 17. In fact, we can almost do a four-part series just on this chapter alone. And we're only going to look at a portion of it. Maybe you've heard the phrase before, incarnation. Incarnation. Now, I don't know about you, if you're unfamiliar with this term, um, it's okay, but I'll tell you hopefully a way that you'll remember it. Because when I see incarnation, I think of ninth grade math class, or, um, Spanish class. Ninth grade Spanish class. Chile con carne, right? What is it? Chile with meat, right? So incarnation is nothing more than God con carne. God with meat on. God with flesh on. That He comes down in the form of a human being, Jesus, to be among us. 
And then Jesus looks to his followers and says, it's now time for you to be Jesus con carne. You actually be little Christ as you go where you are. And in 1 John chapter 1, I love what the message says, and the Word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. Which prompts the question, what does it mean for all of us to move into our neighborhood fully? What does that look like? Well, I have a a privilege to work part-time for an organization called Fresh Expressions, a movement that came out of the United Kingdom. And the U.S. uh, uh, branch is is here, and I get a chance to be a trainer in different retreats and different spaces. And so my boss's boss is one of the bishops of the Church of England. His name is is Bishop Graham Cray. And when he talks about incarnation, this is how he describes our role. Incarnation means three things. Number one, meeting people on their terms. Remembering we're an away game, right? We're an away team. We meet them on their terms. It's not uh, like, uh, uh, like the movie Field of Dreams. If you build it, they will come, right? We go to them. Number two, we take it as seriously as they do. So when the culture hurts, we hurt with them. When the culture celebrates, we celebrate too. We take it as seriously as they do. And number three, we help them find Christ who is already there. Sometimes we may hear about missionaries and, and others, or we go on a mission trip to, to, uh, to Africa, or we go on a mission trip to inner city St. Louis, and we say, we're going to take Jesus to these people. Guess what? Wrong. Jesus created these people. Jesus created that culture. Jesus Jesus is already there. But when we take incarnation seriously, we're helping to identify where Jesus already is at work. That's what it means to be incarnational, to meet people on their terms, to take it as seriously as they do, and to help them find Christ who's already there where we go, whoa, 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 hey, do you notice what's going on here? God's at work in your life. Do you know it? What do you mean? God's at work. So we become detectors of divinity when we think like incarnational followers of Jesus out in the world. So we think about incarnation. We think about culture. There are a couple things we need to know about culture before we get into Acts 17. We talk about culture in general. All cultures have good and bad elements to them. Everyone. And we celebrate and affirm the good elements, but we also speak into and we call out the bad elements, the elements of evil and injustice and uh, deception and all sorts of things. The bad elements, by the way, in, in every culture always involve idols. Always. Idols as we see it within our worldview and our context. Anything that has ultimate meaning and purpose that has eclipsed God on the throne of our lives. And so there are idols individually. There are also idols that exist culturally. And the Gospel speaks to both idols uh, on an individual level as well as on a cultural level. And we could spend the next 15 minutes processing or thinking just what are those idols? What are those things that are good things that I make them ultimate things? Augustine, St. Augustine said that, that uh, idolatry is anything that we use that should be worshipped or anything that we worship that should be used pretty good definition as you think about idolatry. It doesn't have to be a a wooden carved image, right? It can be a car, it can be a status, it can be a a girl, and that girl could be 25, that girl could be three, right? It could be all sorts of things, a a bank account, a, a, a reputation, all sorts of things get in the way. And by the way, they can be good things, they just become ultimate things. And sometimes the good idols are the most dangerous ones because they're the hardest to identify. 
Okay? Now, as you've turned to Acts 17, let me tell you a little uh, a background story that's really important for you to understand. Now, sometime in the 6th century B.C., there was a man by the name of Nicias. And he stood before the council in Athens, and the Athenian council was, was on Mars Hill, a place called Mars Hill. And he reported back from the trip that he had taken to the Pythian Oracle. It was a real desperate trip on his part because Athens had been plagued with disease for some time. And Nicias reported back, he said, our city is under a curse. The priest has revealed that a certain God is punishing us for the heinous crimes of our former king. One council member spoke up and said, what God could this be? We've offered atoning sacrifices to every God. I can't imagine what God this would be. And Nicias replied, I don't know either. Nor did the priest at the oracle know. And Nicias continued. He said, we must send a ship to Crete to fetch a man there by the name of Epimenides. The oracle assures me that he will know how to appease the god. And so after much debate, the humbled council agreed to seek the help of this foreigner. And very soon, Epimenides stepped off the ship in the harbor town of Piraeus in Greece and he and his traveling party began to walk up the road to Athens. And as they journeyed, there were signs of plague that surrounded all of them. Rather than being surprised and shocked by the travesties of the epidemic, Epimenides was surprised by something else. He said, never before have I seen so many gods. He said, in fact, I think there are more gods here than men. And at that, Nicias laughed and replied, Yes, but for the life of us, we can't figure out who this other god could be. We worship every possible god we can imagine. And Epimenides, of course, wondered if that was their problem. And the next morning, Epimenides stood before the council on Mars Hill along with, uh, the, with a flock of choice and hungry sheep that he had requested the night before. As the foreigner stood there in front of the whole council, hundreds and hundreds of Athenians gathered to desperately look for the sign of hope. Epimenides addressed the council. He said, I'm going to sacrifice based on three assumptions. I'm going to offer this sacrifice. The first assumption is this, that there is a God out there. And we don't know his name, but somehow he's connected to our plague. The second assumption is that if we invoke the help of this God, He is great enough and good enough that He will come to our aid. At that, one of the young men in the crowd shouted out, how can we invoke the name of a God who we don't even know His name? And Epimenides replied, that's my third assumption. That this God is so great and so good that if we call on His name, He will smile on our ignorance as long as we acknowledge, acknowledge that ignorance before Him. And so they all looked to the sky and Epimenides cried out, Unknown God, look down upon this city. Forgive this city. Deliver this city. And now if you could choose the sheep that you desire and if you could cause them to lie down on the grass, we'll sacrifice them to you. And with that, they released the hungry sheep to wander around the grassy hill, and miraculously, several of the sheep began to lie down rather than graze with the rest of the flock. Artisans immediately began to mark the exact spot and to collect the sheep for a sacrifice, and Epimenides instructed them to build an altar on the spot and to inscribe it, Agnostus Theo, to an unknown god. 
And they did as he instructed and sacrificed the sacred sheep. And that very day, the plague began to lift. And within a week, the people of Athens were well again. Now, 500 years later, after this story happened, another foreigner, this one a Jew, got off a ship in the harbor town of Piraeus and walked the same long road up to Athens that Epimenides had. And let's read about that Jew who walked up the path that Ep- Epimenides did, in, starting in verse 16 of your Bible. Okay? Acts 17, starting in verse 16. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. And so he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to dispute with him. And some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we want to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and he said, Men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. Now what you worship as something unknown, I'm going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything, because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. From one man he made every nation of men, that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he determined the time set for them and the exact places where they should live. God did, did, did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by man's design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of, all, of this to all men by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, We want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council, and a few men became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, and also a woman named Damaris, a member, uh, and a number of others. Now, hopefully there's some lights lighting up on your dashboard on the story that we just read about Epimenides and here because this, uh, there's, there's some, some key points we need to look at. I want us to pay particular attention to Paul on this, okay? And Tim Keller, a pastor in New York City, has really helped me understand this, especially the four things that Paul did. I want to encourage you to think through this. Notice where Paul went. Notice what he felt 
Notice how he saw and notice then what Paul did. And we're going to look at all four of those. Now notice where Paul went. Now Paul, Paul is waiting for his missionary partners in this. He's waiting for Silas and he's waiting for Timothy to join him. Okay? Paul, you could say, was playing an away game. <laughs> like the shuckers, he's on the road. There's all sorts of things going on he doesn't fully understand. It's not home turf, home field advantage anymore. But instead of simply kicking back and killing time, Paul engages with the culture. He goes to the city of Athens and his radar is up as he is seeking open doors and fertile soil. Now he reasons in this synagogue and in the marketplace as we just read, and the Areopagus. Let me show you a couple of pictures of the Areopagus, okay? Areopagus, if you break it down, just simply means big, large rock, okay? <laughs> so you can see here, you see little tiny people walking up on it. You can visit it today. This is just in the shadow of the Acropolis in Athens. So remember when the Olympics were there, every commercial break, they'd show the Acropolis up on the hill. This is from the Acropolis looking down at the Areopagus, which is also called Mars Hill. You can see it's kind of a little hill here. This is it today. You can see it's kind of worn and cut out, little seats and areas for people to gather together. And again, you see, you know, uh, the Athenian ruins there uh, in the background. It's a very beautiful area, uh, this area of Mars Hill. And uh, the, the hill is called Mars Hill because it was devoted to the god of war, Mars. Um, on this rock, ancient elders, they would sit and they would judge uh, formally homicide cases, right? The god of war, right? So it seemed like a good place of homicide cases to actually uh, come up with a verdict there. But later it became a more informal place to discuss all sorts of topics about art and business, government, philosophy, politics, food, faith, um, journalism. And Paul... Notice where he went. He purposefully goes, there's the Acropolis up there. He purposefully, this is the view from the top of Mars Hill. He goes to this location very, very specifically to engage with people who are far from God. He knows they're already gathering there. He doesn't need to uh, gather a crowd. The crowd is already there. And so he goes to engage with that crowd. Notice that he goes on their terms. Okay? Now, notice what Paul felt. Right? You see in Acts 17, right at the beginning, right? It says that, that uh, in verse 16, he was greatly distressed. Greatly distressed as he's walking around. The best way to describe this is a loving zeal. A loving zeal. Okay? It's a mixture of both indignation and compassion. Where you're compassionate for a group of people, but you're going, at the same time. Okay? It's very important that we understand Paul is both like, I love this group of people, but at the same time. You know who had this good mix? Martin Luther King Jr. Martin Luther King Jr. had both a mix of compassion and indignation. He didn't say, you know, it's no big deal. I love you guys. Like, I just want to, I don't want to hurt your feelings. But he also didn't come out punching. That there was a compassion with the people and a compassion for his own people and a compassion for a better way of doing it, but there was an indignation of saying, this is not right. Paul has this same balance of compassion and indignation. Now here's the deal. If you're compassionate without being indignant, you'll never have the courage to speak the truth about the idols in our culture. However, if we are indignant but never compassionate, we will always turn people off. Always. 
Religious indignation without compassion is nothing more than legalism. We feel awful about our sin, but we never understand that there's a Father who loves us. Religious relativism is where we're nice and sweet and rosy and we're full of compassion because the Father loves us, but it's free from any indignation about our idols. You see, the cross that we celebrate in the Christian faith rescues us both from religious moralism and legalism and religious relativism on each side. Which, by the way, religious relativism and religious moralism are both idols. They're idols. The cross is entirely different because it involves both indignation and compassion at the same time. Paul's speech is civil and it is respectful, but it is direct and it is blunt and it is courageous. And I think it's very important for us to see Paul's posture here of this loving zeal being greatly distressed. So let me ask us something very directly. Very directly. Are you greatly distressed, full of indignation and compassion regarding the idols in your own life? And are you greatly distressed, full of indignation and compassion for the idols in our culture? Because if not, we as a church, it'll be most impossible for us to love our community with gospel eyes and with a gospel motive. We need compassion and we need indignation at the same time like Paul modeled for us. But notice what Paul sees here. Notice in this passage, he doesn't just look around. The, the word there is deeper than that. He doesn't just look at stuff and, oh, I see that, I see that. It, it, the better word is he perceives He's drawing connections here. He doesn't just look at something. He's looking under. He's looking through. He's, he's looking into things. And Paul saw idols everywhere. The word there, and don't get tripped up on all, getting all geeked out on the Greek, but it's a really important word, theoreo, where we get our word theorize. What do you do when you theorize something? You're not just seeing something. You're actually seeing under something to see its true meaning. You see, Paul studied the Scriptures, but he also was a keen student of the culture. And we must theoreo the culture in which we live. And it said that he walked around and he looked. Notice that Paul uses very, very bodily uh, experience here. He uses his feet. He uses his eyes. He uses his ears. Verse 23, for as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. He's perceiving, he's theoreoing as he looks around. And after he sees this, he preaches the resurrection of Christ, right? He began to preach about Christ and the power of the cross and the power of the empty tomb. And it says they're Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. Now this is really important. If you think about the white marble hill there, Mars Hill, the Areopagus, two groups of people are talking to each other. All right, so Epicurean. What are Epicurean philosophers? Epicurean philosophers are ones that say this. Eat, drink, be merry, live it up. It's all about pleasure because guess what? One day we're going to die. If you try to grasp this, the best way to think about it is this is all Las Vegas is built on. Live it up. Pleasure it up. Whatever you want to do, do it. Eat, drink, be merry, go nuts, and oh, the, by the way, we'll lie to you and say whatever happens in Vegas will stay in Vegas. Just live it up. 
That's Epicurean philosophy. On the other end of the spectrum, there was Stoic philosophy that said, all emotions, all pleasure are bad. And so we distance ourselves. So ultimate perfection in life is when I am completely emotionless. Uh, emotions are dangerous. They are weak. So when I am perfect, when I am strong, I have pushed all pleasure away. I have pu pushed all emotions away. In many ways, that's a Buddhist mindset, right? I must separate. I must empty myself from all things. So you can see these philosophers are, are talking. There's a lot of tension because their worldviews are so different. One, live it up, man. If you want to do it, do it. You, you want to get drunk, go get drunk. You want to sleep with 10 women, go do it. It doesn't matter because guess what? One day we're going to die, so you might as well live it up. And then over here, nothing of any emotion is ever good. When we separate ourselves from all things and we just sit with truth, and they're fighting back and forth. These worldviews are, are at odds. And they're arguing together up there on the hill of Mars. And Paul is asked to speak. And he creates a common connection point. This is what he says. He doesn't come out and go, you guys are a bunch of idiots. What does he say? He affirms them. He says, men of Athens, I look around and I see that you all are very religious people. You hunger. You want to know the spiritual. You actually want to wrestle with the spiritual things of great importance. And he says, I see this altar even to an unknown god, Agnostus Theo. See, there were 12 main gods in Athens, but there were a whole bunch of countless minor gods as well. There were lesser gods. But often, Athenians, when they would worship up at the Acropolis at times, they would swear like this, and they would pray and end their prayers like this, in the name of the unknown God, amen. Now think about that. By the way, think about that little mindless phrase we throw in at the end of our prayers at dinner. In the name of Jesus we pray, amen. Think what a benefit it is. We pray to a God who not only we know His name, who knows our name, but intimately knows us inside and out. Aren't you grateful we don't pray in the name of the one we have no idea what your name is? Amen. Maybe this week when we pray that little phrase, that'll mean something a little bit more now. And then Paul uses these two lines. And this is where I really want you to look in your Bibles on this because this is really important, okay? He uses two lines in his preaching, right? When he's talking to them. Verse 28, right? He's preaching, he's proclaiming, and then he says, for in Him we live and move and have our being. Anybody have a footnote in your Bible? What does the footnote say? Who said that? Epimenides. The, the cultural story of Athens is wrapped up in the Epimenides story that happened 500 years prior to when Paul shows up. He starts quoting their poets. Even though Epimenides looks like he's asleep here, <laughs> he probably was a pretty wise person in the, in the eyes of the Athenians. And then what do you think the people listening to him would be thinking when he keeps going and he says at the end of verse 28, as some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Another footnote. Who said it?
Stoic philosopher named Eretus. Paul is doing his research. If Epimenides looks asleep, Eretus looks a bit angry. <laughs> but we are his offspring. Paul is quoting their culture shapers. That would be like you sitting down over coffee and talking about your journey with Jesus and referencing, oh, say, Katy Perry, J.K. Rowling, Kanye, Tay-Tay, right? <laughs> but this is what Paul's doing. He's studying the culture as a way of saying, how do I then connect the dots to the cultural story shapers where I'm at? And Paul, in essence, as he begins to quote the culture shapers and the story writers, he says, guys, good start. You have, in, you have a long, you have long, you long to engage in the spiritual realm. You seek, you're hungry, you reach out for something that's bigger than yourselves. Good start, but you're missing it. You're missing it. He says, in the past, God looked over, uh, looked over our ignorance, but now He's calling all people to repentance. He's saying, rethink your way of life. There's a different direction. There's a different way of engaging today. And God did this, verses 27 and 28. This is beautiful language that Paul uses. God did this so that people would seek Him and perhaps reach out for Him and find Him, though He is not far from any one of us. For in Him we live and move and have our being. Some of these philosophers thought Paul had absolutely lost his mind. Said they sneered at him. He's bringing such strange ideas. But some, it says, became followers of Paul and ultimately followers of Jesus. Dionysius, Damaris, and a number of others. But he was invited back. He said, this is interesting. Tell us more. Tell us more. You see, there, there really are two types of people in the world. I mean, it's been said before, two types of people, right? Those that can count, and, or three types of people, right? Those that can count and those that can't. Right? You've heard that before? Right? But there really are two types of people in the world. The two types of people are this. Number one, those who are trying to save themselves through idols. Which, by the way, are religious and irreligious people. Do you know how many, how many religious people exist today who are trying to save themselves through their own religious idolatry? Religious people have very strong idols too, you know? Those, the first group of people, those who are trying to save themselves through idols, and number two, those who are fully surrendered to Christ. And if we don't get to this step, we're not leaning into the gospel. We're just learning a bunch of cool stuff about our culture. See, notice the order that Paul had. He went, he felt, he saw, and then he preached. Sadly, in the history of the church in North America, we are notorious for flipping that. As soon as we show up, we open our mouths. We preach. Maybe we need to reconsider our posture like Paul who went, who felt, who saw, and then he opened his mouth. 
Again, look what Paul did. He entered their world geographically, culturally, relationally. He took it as seriously as they did, quoting their poets, not his, going to their places where they connect regularly. And then he helped them find Christ by using their symbols, especially this idol to agnostus theo, to connect the dots. Now, how do we do this in our own context, in our own culture? You know, I've been studying this passage in Acts 14 for a while, and with the help of Dave and Kathy Peters and Joel and Bowen, um, Joel and I kind of cracked open an idea and said Christianity Today had, uh, had asked um, if we would be willing to create a video based on our context here in Lansdale. So this is, this is dated, this is a few years old, so don't make fun of my glasses and my haircut, okay? So, but I, I want you to just see some things that Joel and Dave and Kathy and I were, were trying to connect as we thought about something that exists um, almost within sight of where you're sitting now regarding our own idol or statue. So watch this. So again, thanks to the Peters and Joel for making that uh, great video, and it was fun to have it posted uh, on the Christianity Today website a few years ago, and, and to hear how other people are engaging their context and culture. And so I just want to invite you that every time you drive down Main Street, look at the Kugel Ball, look at the sculpture, which you now know is called Revival. When I sat down with the sculptor, he meant cultural revival, and I told him, oh, that's, that's great, but I'm praying for a different kind of revival. Uh, in our community. And so I invite you, when you see those or you're near those, would you pray with me uh, in that way? Because that can be a, a very important thing. But again, trying to embody what, what Paul was doing on that. So very practically before we end, like what are some ways we can actually engage like Paul? What are some things that we can be doing? Let me, let me just offer a few very specific ones to us for us to consider. Some of them uh, you all are doing. And uh, very grateful for that. But being ridiculously practical, what can we do to engage further with what's going on? Even if you don't live in Lansdale proper, which is fine, um, where you're at has its own set of cultural norms, good and bad, and its own symbols and its own idols. Can we recognize those? The first one I would just encourage us to do is exactly what Paul did, to walk around and to see. And so participate in community events. Many of you do that, but participate in these events. Uh, there was a season we would go to every borough council meeting, and I will assure you they are not the most exciting things in the world, and that's a very polite understatement. Um, but there are um, the, the amount of people that we would meet in those contexts. That today is our Mars Hill, is it not? Um, of gathering to talk about important ideas. Um, but there are festivals and farmer's markets and events and parades and parties and mosque community days and just sometimes showing up and saying, God, what is going on here? Can I at least theoreo? Can I notice and perceive what's happening here? And what does this do? Am I filled with compassion and indignation and balance as I'm here? What am I noticing? What are the hopes and dreams and the heartaches and the fears of this particular context? So that's number one, just participate in community events. Just show up, and many of you are doing that. And I love that even our prayer team has had a, a presence when uh, there's First Friday uh, events here in Lansdale on the first Friday of each month when it's warm out um, because they're right by the Kugel Ball, which is really kind of cool, these cultural spaces, the Mars Hill of our, of our day. Number two is identify and spend time in third places. I don't know if you've ever heard of this term, third place. 
It was invented, uh, it was uh, created by a guy by the name of Ray Oldenburg, who wrote a book called The Great Good Place. You all can borrow that if you wish. But he said, every culture of the world has a third place. Your first place is your home. Your second place is your place of work. But where is that place that's neither home nor work where you can go regularly to connect, right? Think about Cheers, right? Where everybody knows your name and they treat you just the same, right? There's this family atmosphere. It's not a home or work, right? Think of Central Perk in, uh, in Friends, right? Uh, if the, the diner in Seinfeld. A lot of our shows actually have these third places of gathering, all sorts of groups of people where the number one priority is to connect and to relate to one another. Right? So they exist with bars, coffee shops, parks, hotspots, community centers, library community rooms, main, uh, main street intersections. They're all over the place, and every culture has them around the world, and every culture and city has them as well. And so can we notice them? Um, by the way, there's tons of third places in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Uh, and that'd be a fun study. I'm going to challenge you in your house churches this week to try to identify the house, the uh, the, the third places that are in the Old and the New Testament. I'll give you one example. Jesus goes and meets with the woman at the well. Why does he go there? Because people are going to come there all the time throughout the day. And so he doesn't have to create a crowd. He goes and just stays there because he knows the crowd will come to him. He knows the crowd will come to him. Where did the early church meet? Solomon's porch, which is a public space in the temple. They met in the third place. Guess what? We meet in a third place. At least a third place for children. Right? So there are third places all around. Can you identify those? Can you hang out there? Can you spend time there? I find that when my teaching prep is in my office, it's good. But when my teaching prep is at a coffee shop in our area, it's even better. Because I find, I say, how does this relate to what I'm saying to that person? Oftentimes people say, what are you talking about? What are you doing? What are you, what are you preparing for? Right? Then number three, lastly, before we close, to pray for favor, to pray for persons of peace. And I mentioned that a few weeks ago, but persons of peace. If you look in Matthew 10 and in Luke 10 and even in Acts 16, remember Lydia, right? Paul goes down to the river and it says there's all sorts of people down there already. Paul was thinking strategically by going to a third place. Right? And he's praying for persons of peace. And who does he find? He finds Lydia. Right? And Lydia now opens up the door to all sorts of other people that we would not have been able to connect to. They open up, they're a gatekeeper. But if you look in Luke 10 and in Luke, look in Matthew 10, Jesus very specifically says, when you go to a new place, find a person of peace. They smell the aroma of Christ on you, they just don't know that's what they're smelling yet. And they go, oh, you know what? This is cool. Let me introduce you to all my other friends. Hey guys, this is JR. JR, he's a pastor or something in town, but JR, tell him what you do. Right? They're the gatekeepers. So who are the persons of peace in your life? So I'm going to end there. I'm going I'm to throw a bunch of stuff your way to your house church shepherds this week because I think there's just tons to unpack in Acts uh, 17 here with Mars Hill. But Paul... Good stuff happens here in Mars Hill in a foreign culture where they were the away, where he was the away team. He, he was on a road trip and he knew it, and yet he engaged with the culture in very specific ways. 
So I'll end with this. This is the good news. Let me reiterate the good news that Paul says here. He says that God did this. In other words, loving and sending His Son so that people would seek Him and perhaps reach out for Him and find Him, though He is not far from any one of us. Isn't that the great news? That God is not far from any one of us. That we can reach out and we can grab hold of Him. He's right there. And oh yeah, by the way, He is not a nameless, faceless, unknown God. He came down and had a human face. And He had a name that we know and we can pray to in His name and not to some unknown deity. That's the good news. So let me pray for us. God, thank You for Paul's example. God, for us, um, You have called us to not merely just be religious people who show up to church once a week and hope that if anything else comes up, it'll just kind of work into our everyday um, uh, calendars. We see Paul made a cultural cost, uh, a cultural sacrifice for the cost. And God, we want to be people who have the humility to meet people where they're at on their terms. To take it as seriously as they do, which involves a cultural cost. And to help them find you because you're already there. So would you help us think like missionaries with our hands and our feet and our eyes and our hearts that are greatly distressed, full of an equal measure of compassion and indignation. God, deal with the idols in our own individual hearts. And may we be people that have enough indignation to call out the idols of our culture while at the same time having the compassion that you embodied perfectly. Forgive us when we don't find that balance correctly. But may we be people who take this very seriously. And God, as we drive down Main Street, even as we come to church and many of us who pass this uh, revival statue and across the street see the kugel ball spinning on, on water, would we be reminded of the local and the global elements of you at work and the role that we have to play and to participate with you. And it's with that that we pray. In the name of Jesus, who has a name and who knows us by name and who knows us intimately. Amen. Amen.